cliffcentral.com. Well, he has been called one of the most inspiring people by Prince Harry, and I have no doubt that he's going to be one of the most interesting people we've spoken to. I have some kind of a, I don't know what it is, like an imposter syndrome whenever I interview somebody who's been through some of the things that our guest has been through because he is a remarkable guy. He has, um, he's been in Afghanistan. He's been to the Paralympics and won gold. He's even taken on Mount Everest. And these are just the top line things that this guy's done. So I feel like a, a huge underachiever. But Yaku van Gas is here. He's, I mean, just an inspiration to so many people. But it's great that you're around in South Africa and that you're able to make yourself available to us so that I could talk to you. It's so nice to meet you, Yaku. It's great to be back home, uh, <laughs> uh, escaping the cold UK winters. So uh, we tend to do that for a few years now. But no, what, thank you for having me. You don't sound South African anymore. <laughs> I've kind of lost the, the South African touch a tiny bit. I do. I, I come home and uh, my, all my mates go, oh, the English boy's back. So, uh, so yeah, yeah, it's weird. I mean, a little bit of a gray area because I still have an accent over there yeah. and when I come here they're like oh you floss you said I've got so you actually you English. don't know where you fit because they both have a problem both groups are like you said don't sound like you belong yet exactly exactly <laughs> that so uh, so yeah we'll just fit wherever we want to so listen um, I want you to start the story because I think for many South Africans and for many people all over the world who are interested in, in your story, it would seem odd to them that a South African guy in his early 20s would find himself in the British Army, mm. first of all. Second of all, deployed to Afghanistan. Yeah. And then obviously all the things that happened after that. So just explain like, kind of how you grew up and how you ended up in Afghanistan. Yeah. Start fighting, for the, fight, fighting for the queen. <laughs> for the queen. Um, yeah, it's, it's one of those things. I kind of... As a young boy, I always had a love and a passion for the outdoors. Um, I spent my time between uh, living in Vitbank, uh, of all places. So we lived in Vitbank. Say no more. If it was just to get out of Vitbank, good excuse. That's e exactly it. You know, <laughs> I, I went to the extreme of getting away from Vitbank. Yaku, you can't even drink the water in Vitbank anymore. I have friends there and I say it's getting worse and worse and worse by the oh. day. In Malasleni, yes. the place of coal. Yeah. Exactly. And bugger all else. And nothing else, yeah. But, okay, but I'm making fun of this, but it, it probably was a motivator for you as someone who thought bigger and wanted to be part of a bigger world to 100%. get the hell out, right? Yeah, exactly, 100%. But grown up, uh, you know, going to friends, uh, having a braai and sitting around that campfire, listening to stories, mm. you know, because back then, you know, my dad and... People, and my grandma, they still had national service. So listening about all these stories about the Angola war and stuff they've done, I just loved it. And mm. I just saw this fascination of wanting to do that someday. Sadly, we all know that at that stage in time, you know, we're talking early 2000s here, that, um, you know, South Africa was just, you know, the South African army well, or defense force is not- Still is. And still I mean, is. I'll say know. this because I don't want you to sound like someone who- uh, has anything negative to say here. But I mean, it's not really a serious proposition for someone who cares about the the values of being in a defense force uh, to, to join our sheltered employment semblance of a defense force in this country. So your options, though, are quite limited because yeah. you're not a citizen of another country. No. And although most armies in the world will take any warm bodies... They're also quite picky about who and where and why. And also, you've got to go and do some serious training. So you have to know what you're all about. Mm -hmm. And th that presents a lot of very audacious goals for a young man in his 20s. Yeah, yeah. 
and and that's exactly it. So I started, you know, this idea started brewing of, do I want to join the army? Do I want to join a foreign French foreign legion? Must have been an option, right? Yeah, one hundred percent. Right. Um, I left school, so done the trick, and I was again. I was in this uncertainty of where South Africa is going to go. And especially, you know, as a young white male, again, sure, once again, being at the bottom of picking order, uh, we had a small family business. So I started working for my dad, thought I would learn the ropes of eventually taking over the family business, but it just didn't take my boxes. I was just like, mm. something was missing and I craved independence. I just wanted to achieve something much different. And then I heard about the British army and because we're part of the Commonwealth, that enables us to join. So there's a lot of kind of background checks, police clearance checks. Yeah, sure, and as you they said, want to know that you're not a lunatic. Yeah, or a, there's a lot yeah. of checks and, and hoops to actually ju- jump through. But th- I just heard about that and started the process. I was fortunate enough at that stage as well, my sister, which is three years older than me, was already living in the UK at the time. So she yeah. provided me with a lot of information. Um, and we just started the ball rolling. And I, I kind of just set myself like, yeah, this is what I want to do. At the time, I had a Bucky. I sold that. I had a, uh, a what's it called a hi-fi. You know, the yeah, old, yeah, 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 yeah. When we still CD used to play, play music off yeah, there, yeah, <laughs> off CDs and yeah, sure, sure, sure. And I sold that. Uh, I basically I sold everything I had that I owned at that stage in time, saved as much as I possibly can, and bought a ticket uh, to the UK. I landed the Saturday morning somewhere. I think it was early June, yeah, in two thousand and seven. And then Monday morning, I was in a careers office in Trafalgar Square in London, signing up to the army. Going, yeah, wow. I want to join the, the you know the infantry. What? How difficult is it to become infantry trained? Because uh, there's a, there's a process. It's a, it's a certain time period. You have to again tick boxes. Correct. In order to get through there, you have to be physically fit. You have to be mentally fit. You have to do a lot of basic training with weapons, with all the 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 the. the procedures and systems that they implement in there. What's that like? It was quite daunting, to be honest. Like you say, there's actually, as you walk into that office, they book you in and you have to sit what's called a BARB test. And I can't remember what BARB stands for, but it's a BARB test. So again, you can't, I can't just walk in and go, oh, I want to join the Air Force or I want to no. join, you know, I want to be a mm. pilot. You it's have like to I want to join. I want to join the marketing department at a little, yeah, uh, Exactly. Know. So you, you do, it's similar to, a little bit of an IQ test and you kind of said that and that kind of almost depending on the results of the uh, the outcome of the results they kind of not push you but say you've got all of these options available to you and then you kind of select from there and so did you choose infantry or did they put you in there so I I scored really well so that gave me loads of options but I've always had the interest in the infantry well those are the that's the cutting edge, that's the leading edge, that's the vanguard of the army. Yeah. That means you're going in, you're gonna see forward area deployment, you're gonna see proper fighting. That's it. That's the hard yeah. core edge of yeah. being in a military unit. Exactly, and at that stage, I didn't actually quite know which part of the infantry I wanted to join. Um, so again, they have various recruitment officers working in the recruitment office to try and recruit for their regiments. Mm. Um, and at first I spoke to a guy, it's back then it was called the Green Jackets, which is now called the Rifle Regiment. Right. Um, and he spoke to me, gave me all the information. And just as I'm about to walk out, this tall, uh, big officer guy, you know, immaculately dressed, came down the stairs and he heard my accent because literally I flew from South Africa 
two days ago. <laughs> yeah. And I could barely speak a word of English. And he's just like, hey, you're South African. I was like, yes. He's like, you guys are really good soldiers. You, a lot of you joined the parachute regiment. I was like, oh, what's the parachute regiment? And he just gave me a leaflet. And that wow. was it. And I went home and I researched it on the internet. And I was like, this is what I want to join. This is part of the elite. How fortuitous to meet that guy. Did you ever see him again after that? Never seen, never seen him saw? again. Yeah. Wow. And he just gave me that leaflet and that was it. You know, he didn't try to convince me. He didn't, he, he just went, you guys make good soldiers. There's a lot of you in our regiment and we like wow. you. And he gave me a leaflet and I researched it. And like I say, it was like, even on, even on the website, they like out of, you know, there's only like a 20% pass rate for joining the parachute regiment. Um, but if you do, these are, this is what you do. And I was just hooked. I was just like, yeah, this is, I need to at least try to. How many, other, always go and, how many other South Africans did you meet during basic training? So there was five of us okay. just in one, you know, so that's only one training group getting taken in. Did you all in. become mates? We're all good mates. Yeah. So <laughs> and we they're all, all still, they're all still around. They're all still around. Okay, yeah. Good yeah. Stuff. So, which is amazing. Yeah. Um, it's, I was at a, Another friend's, um, he's finally leaving the army after 24 years. And it, wow. we had a dine out dinner. And there were still of the guys that I was in with my, uh, you know, with my recruitment um, that's sure. still in. And, you know, obviously that's what nearly 15 years of service they've done now. So, uh, so yeah, which is crazy. I'm sorry to dwell on this so much, but I do have like a, a bit of envy about the, the idea of this. Like you said, your parents, you, you know, your dad, your grandfather, I look at every generation of my family going back as far as I can see, they all did military service mm, of mm. some kind. And some of them were professional soldiers for most of their lives. And then I come along and I feel like, what the hell am I doing? Yeah. Because you're, you're doing like really important stuff there. Yeah. And I know when you're in, you know, a unit and you're be given, being given orders and some of it seems very routine and mundane and quite boring, especially up to the stuff that ended up happen happening to you later on. But it's, it feels like you're making history. Yes. Yeah. Right? You feel like There's a person of consequence. Yeah. And like you're carrying around a weapon and you're doing stuff that is dangerous. Yeah. <laughs> it, makes, it makes the odds and the risk so much more alluring and adventurous and exciting. And I think all men need that at some point in their lives. 100%. It, it, for me, it was, it brought so much to my life and also you know, the discipline. I think mm. the army gives you such a foundation of what you then can, you know, once you leave or whether you stay in, it really gives you like an element of, if you build off these foundations that it gives you, that it structures you, you know, you can almost only get success from that. And, you know, we have six pillars of, of various things within the army of selflessness, you know, um, uh, oh gosh, I need to remember all of them. I won't, but, uh, you know, selflessness and, uh, looking after your comrades, um, you know, the guy next to you, to your left, to your right. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's all simple things that we can apply on a daily basis that will really just make you a better person. I will move on from this in a minute. I know we're like going over this in some level of detail that you probably haven't been asked for a long time because your book is about so many bigger things. But there's so much of that skill set that you've just kind of hinted at now that I don't think young men get in society anymore. We aren't taught the value of looking after your team, mm. of um, making sure that you are responsible for X, Y, and Z, of doing everything properly the way it should be done. Discipline. It's discipline. All yeah. of this stuff is kind of left out of most people's day-to-day -day lives. 
Yeah. And these days it's more about kind of making it up as you go, being very flexible, doing a bit of this and a bit of that, but never really mastering anything. That's totally different yeah. to what you learn in the army. Totally. Yeah. Mm. All right. So let's just fast forward a little bit because obviously at this point, the, the big international conflict and the one which in, in, in which Britain is most involved is Afghanistan. Um, I'm assuming you were in and around Kandahar, kind of in southwestern Afghanistan, probably most of the time. A lot of these movements were kept from us in the public and in the mm -hmm. media because this is an active war zone. Exactly. And Afghanistan, again, is a place that fascinates the hell out of me. I'm sure it doesn't fascinate you anymore. But when you're in there, it is such a throwback to like almost primitive times in some ways. And then you've got these highly efficient uh, military outfits in the form of the NATO forces and Britain and America and fr the French and everybody else. And you've got these guys who are improvising with IEDs in the most incredibly ingenious and dangerous ways yeah. that cost you more than just uh, you know a little bit of blood, sweat, and tears. Yeah. What was it like in Afghanistan? And can you describe when people ask you what Afghanistan is like at that time in the 2000s? How do you describe it to them? I think you really summed it up so well there. It's, it really is a place of fascination because, like you say, we have some of the most advanced military equipment and uh, even field hospitals. You know, those camps, you know, Bastion itself, Kandahar itself, you know, these are small cities that, you know, gets created out of nothing with the infrastructure that gets flown in from all the NATO nations and other bigger nations, and especially the Americans. And then you can, within half an hour, in a vehicle or on a helicopter or any other form of transport, you can be in the middle of the desert and there's literally nothing around. And like you say, or you can walk into an Afghan uh, uh, a town or compound and like you say, you go back 2,000 years, literally. They are still building the houses with mud and clay. Um, and Kandahar is fascinating because... It's actually a very important religious center, and it's the place from which Mullah Muhammad Omar ruled Taliban Afghanistan yeah. up to just after September the 11th. Yeah. And he was a, like a complete maniac. He had one eye, and he was deeply religious, yeah. and he was feared across the country. Very I mean, you're in, you're in the center of his power there. Yeah. And then, like I say, you can – and then on the other side, I actually deeply fell in love with this country because mm. – Funny enough, it had this vastness and actual beauty as well. This That's is more ancient. Ancient in so many ways. And then I spent both um, a very short stint in the winter day, but most of my tours was in the summer. Um, but also just, this is the adventure side of me coming out. I was flying around in a helicopter or beaming around on a, on a motorbike doing recce patrols. And all that's going through my mind is, if this place wasn't in an uh, actual war zone, this will be the most amazing place to come on holiday. You can ski, you can, you know, in the winter, Such they extremes, get hey? tons of snow. Yeah. The extreme side of it, you can mountaineer. The mountains. Exactly. You know, there's so much. And I actually, like, I actually fell in love with this place just because of that ruggedness that it had and what it could offer. And it was such a shame that it was in a state that it was uh, and what's obviously going on in it. But oh. it is literally as you well, see I've got bad well. news for you. It hasn't got any better. It's not actually, yeah, yeah, it's not, not in the slightest. Yeah, it's, listen, um, 
uh, again, uh, like a part of me is hugely jealous of the experience of Afghanistan. Obviously, I wouldn't have necessarily wanted to go through the difficulty of being in an active military unit there and, and, and what happened to you, which let's get to the point because for me, you would have been a hero anyway. It just turns you into even more of one because you were hit by a rocket-propelled grenade in Afghanistan in 2009 and you almost lost your life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Where did this happen? Tell us if you remember the whole day. And Yeah, I can remember it very clearly, actually. Um, so at this stage, I have served five and a half months in Afghanistan. So the British, um, you know, British Army, we tend to do six-month tour. I literally had a matter of weeks left, maybe two weeks left in theatre before returning back to the UK. Um, so we were already on that kind of wind-down scale. Mm. Um, some of my bags already packed um, and kind of a slow handover takeover was kind of happening. But it was the 19th of August, uh, 2009, and we... It was just a regular day. We actually had a pl- a kind of nothing in the diary to go out on a mission or an operation or whatever it might be. It was actually nothing was coming in. And it was around about midday. We all got called into the ops room. Um, very good intel- intelligence came through saying that we found an ID facil- fac- facilitator. Yeah. And we were after this guy for some time. This guy's actually got so crafted, as you mentioned before, with these improvised explosive devices that he started kind of creating almost like a signature. He made it different. He made it a certain way. He detonated a certain way. He he became like an a persona expert. Yeah, exactly. And we were after this guy for some time. And it was, as I mentioned, and the dates are actually quite important because the twentieth of August, the next day, was the first time in many years that there was going to be a free and fair election in Afghanistan. And they were going to try and disrupt some of the voting stations by sending in suicide bombers and clacking themselves off. And very good intel from the Americans came in and we decided, yeah, we're in the area, we can do this. So by midday, we had all our orders. We went back, we completed all of our kind of preparation phases. That time I was, or this mission, and that's that's what I almost loved about my job as well. There was such a big variety of things I did. Um, but this night I was attached to a sniper. So my role was to assist him to be a sharpshooter, but also assist him with some of the kit and equipment we'll be carrying. Right. And one of them is actually a telescopic ladder. So uh, ladder, we pull out, we use these to get over a wall or again, climb onto a roof of a building. Mm-hmm. Um, and we attach a little day sack onto them. You throw them on your back. They're a bit heavy. They're a bit uncomfortable, but that was my role that night. Um, so prepare all my kids. And, and how equipment. many of you all together in this, this unit? So with this unit, um, it was quite a elite setup. So there was about seven of us from the parachute regiment, especially more so one para. So right. one para is, um, so the regiment is broken up into three regiments, one para, two para, three para, but one para plays a very specific role. Uh, and we are a special forces support group. So we were actually there attached to UK Special Forces. All right. Um, So we were with a UK Special Forces support group. And then we were also training and mentoring 
the Afghanistan special forces. Right. Because the whole point is to uh, alleviate and, and kind of give them more control. And skills transfer and all of that exactly stuff. Exactly. Because they were trying to, to establish their own we, military. We would retract slowly <clears throat> and they would start running some right. of the missions more, you know, in the future. And then there was a, so then there was probably about 10 of the UK special forces and then about a 30 odd man um, unit of the Afghanistan Afghanistan Special Forces. Okay. And then we deployed at night. Uh, we operate mostly at night for the element of surprise, obviously with night vision goggles, having the use of helicopters. And it was, the aim was, we need to capture this guy. And we just landed pretty much almost on his compound. The SBS guys, they abseiled into the compound. We got dropped off, me and uh, the, my sniper, we got dropped off um, a couple of Ks out of, um, the target zone, and then we kind of slowly worked our way. We kind of providing security, making sure nothing comes in and nothing comes out. And this is on degree. foot. This is all on foot, all in yeah. hostile territory, all in hostile territory. And you don't necessarily know the terrain, so you have to figure it out as you go. Pretty much, yeah. There's only so much intel. We've wow. got uh, uh, intelligence, and we got overhead view shots of the compounds and right. the little village. But as you know, again, how many, how many miles, kilometers do you have to cover here? Um, so this one, actually, so on a, on a normal operation, we would, again, to keep the element of surprise, we would actually land anything between 10 miles out from, sure. so what's 10 miles? 10 miles times yeah, 1.6, like 16, 16 kilometers. So we would usually walk 16 kilometers into a hostile environment. Because this guy, we didn't know what setup he had. He's escaped our kind of claws quite a few times. He's managed to kind of get away from us. So this time we just wanted to kind of get on him and kind of see what we can do. Um, so like I say, actually the SBS guys pretty much landed almost on his compound and just- Right, reminds me of the Osama bin Laden raid. Very the, similar, yeah, right. very similar. Mm -hmm. And like I say, and us as our unit, the the, S, um, the SFSG guys, Special Forces Support Group guys, one para, we were there to provide kind of a security perimeter for them as they conduct their operations. Um, so yeah, so we were just kind of also just dropped in a location and then kind of constantly making our way um, from different rooftops and different high points and viewpoints to make sure, like I say, um, there's not any forces coming out, you know, to come support him. Or if there's someone kind of trying to escape the compounds that right. we will, again, um, defend them. Um, and like I say, very successful operation. We captured the guy. We captured 10 very young man, men um, as mm. well. That was going to be the suicide bombers. We got all the suicide vests. Sure. So e extremely successful operation. And if you think about how many lives we've actually saved that night, yeah. well, the, the going into the next day, um, it's phenomenal. And as we kind of then took all the detainees with us um, and walked into the desert, into a safe location to where the helicopter is going to pick us back up, a call came over the radio saying, uh, there's a there's a building nearby. And the, the pilot wasn't happy with it because, again, he doesn't want to take the chance of someone just popping out with small arms fire or, sure. again, actually an RPG fired to the, to the helicopter. Right. So he's given us a new co coordinates for a new location. But this obviously took us off a proven route. So we knew the route to the, the primary HLS, helicopter landing site, right. was clear. Now we're going into unknown territory. So... About 30 minutes into this walk, we spotted some movement on the high ground. A couple of guys in a patrolling formation couldn't identify weapons at this stage. So we went firm, we went down on one knee. Again, of course we work with the Afghan special forces. They speak the language. We send a small section of them forward just to tell these guys we need to conduct some searches and we'll move forward on. They then shouted out a number of verbal commands. 
They didn't react. These guys suddenly opened up with a spray of AK-47. Sure. In our general direction. We dropped them very quickly, but suddenly there was there muzzle flashes. Is there to take cover here? So we were just on the side of a road, very, very little cover. Exposed um, as hell. Very exposed. Um, there was a small, small irrigation ditch. We were trying to get as low as we possibly can, but like you say, we were actually really exposed at this stage. And suddenly we were receiving fire from different locations. Um, and oh, we, not just these guys up on the road. Not just these guys up, up on the road, no. So, and that's what we were quite confused with because suddenly there was muzzle flashes from different um, locations, more to our right, some to our left. Um, and the firefight, the intensity grew rapidly. And we were, this is probably one of the biggest firefights, you know, five and a, five and a half months into a tour. Mm. We've seen a lot. This one just exploded. Um, we had the what's called the ghost ship above us, so a Hercules C-130, um, which can provide um, some support fire to us. Yeah. And we had to call them in multiple times. And actually, I think till this day, our guy, the guy from the RAF, um, the JTAC that does that, that calls in the fire in certain locations, put actually his career on the line because he was trying to save us because we were slowly starting to actually get overrun. And they were telling us that there's certain amount of, you know, hostile guys coming around and they're trying to, they're actually trying to left flank us. And this is where I was. I was right at the back um, with some of the detainees and we actually saw them come around. So we were going to watch these detainees. Yes, we still need to watch these detainees. These guys are actively hostile as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and obviously, you know, Geneva Convention rules. You can't uh, let them get shot. We can't let them get shot. We, they are now in our kind of care. Custody and care. Custody and care, correct. So, Yaku, then, this is not a great situation. Were you at this point worried? Or had you been in a situation like this before? It's, it's a weird one. Because, no, I wasn't worried. Uh, who's we've your been CEO in at similar... this point? Who, who's, who's calling the shots? So, we have a, a special forces operator calling, okay. calling the shots, yes. Um, Did they sound like they were worried? <laughs> There was a few up. times we were like, uh, this is not ideal situation okay. and we just had to act. Um, but yes, and especially like I say, once we got to situations where the JTAC having to call in, you know, support fire in danger, danger, close areas. So again, they will have certain ranges of what they're allowed, you know, fire to kind of get drawn into um, for them to kind of go beyond those boundaries. You know, that really, really happens. But very soon we found ourselves in this place. And, and anyway, so we neutralized these guys who were trying to come around us. But I was, I was very close to a PKM gunner, so a machine gunner. And every time he was firing, a big flame obviously spat out the Comes front out of his nozzle. Um, and I think that's kind of where he was drawing attention. It lit you up. It lit us up. So they were trying to kind of get this guy neutralized. And two RPGs was fired from my left flank. The one came over our heads, exploded in a distance, because it's a very inaccurate weapon system. And especially these guys will just... So is an AK. Yeah, you know, they would just <laughs> pounce around a corner, yeah. not really aim, and then kind of fire it off. And the second one? And the second one is, this is where it gets interesting. So the second one was fired low, bouncing mm. and ricocheting off the ground, and just heading towards my general direction. Like I say, literally going in any direction. Like a rugby ball. You like don't know where ball. it's going to go. Exactly. 
And at this very moment in time, um, I was giving covering fire to my sniper partner. He was on his belt buckle. He was putting on a fresh magazine. So then I have to get up oh, and uh, up my rate of fire until he comes back in. And that's exactly what I did. And in the side of my night vision goggles, I can just see this red glow heading towards me and the sound of this rocket just getting louder and louder. And I just knew it was going to be close. And literally within a split second's reaction, I twisted my head away and my back to this oncoming rocket. And that's when the rocket hit the ladders that I still had on my back at this stage, that telescopic ladders. And that's why I said that was actually important bit of notice, uh, you know, information. And that's what saved my life. So that war then exploded, that set it off. And then it severed, the blast severed my arm, my left arm, you know, immediately. Yeah. Uh, I had shrapnel wounds to my left side, punctured some of my internal organs. Uh, I've lost a third of muscle and tissue to my left upper thigh. I fractured my left knee and I broke my left ankle really badly. And the blast threw me about five meters away from my original position. And it's amazing. I was so dazed and confused, but the, the one thing that was going through my head was like, why am I not in this firefight? It was just that training again, just like, I need to get back. I need to get back into this so firefight. So the entire time you weren't knocked out, you were conscious? Yes. But you had sustained these horrific injuries. Yeah. You were aware of them or not? That was for later. Not that very second, but it's literally because my head was going, why, you know, there's dust, my ears you, was ringing. Yeah, what do you hear? You, you, yeah, oh, it was just like white noise. It just be, you know, long beep. Everything sounded muffled. Everything sounded quite far away. Um, and like I said, there's, um, you know, I can see bits of obviously the shrapnel like on fire and burning, like so bits of light all over me. Um, and like I say, in the, the only thing is going from my head is like, why am I not in this firefight? And it's when I was trying to sit back up and actually hold my rifle in a correct fire position, I, I actually looked down and realized, oh, my left arm's gone. And that's when I realized, oh, I've been injured. So it, at first I didn't quite really know what's going on. And then that's when I put my rifle down and I, I had a tourniquet on my chest plate and tried to apply self-help to stop the bleeding, but I couldn't do it up tight enough. I was kind of shaky and kind of in shock. And then luckily one of my teammates realized I was not where I supposed to be, came crawling over, helped me with the tourniquet and then radioed in for a medic. And then I received life-saving treatment after that. How, how close do you think you were to death there? Because psh, this teammate who crawled over to help you may have given you, uh, you know, the time that you needed to get to medical help. Maybe the tourniquet helped. Maybe, you know, if, if, if you had not turned your back, it would have been tickets? Yeah, 100%. If not to my back, I would have kind of, yeah, it would have hit my rib cage. Mm. If I didn't have the ladders on me, it would have hit my back. So, yeah, it was, you know. I wonder it what was, those ladders looked like afterwards. You know what? That's a great question. I would love, because I've seen some of my other kids. I've seen some of my um, my belt rig, so my, mm. um, some of the other pouches and kit mm. that I have had. Because, again, that all gets taken and goes into forensic evidence sure. and all kinds of stuff. And they do an investigation. Exactly. Um, and later on, some of it's been released. And I've seen some of that, and that didn't look in great shape. So, yeah, that, the ladders is most likely not going to be used again. So you went through 11 operations and plenty of rehabilitation. And incredibly, and, and I think for the purposes of just having you here to tell the story, you survived, which is amazing. Um, but really, that was in some ways only the beginning of your story, because at that point, you know, you know that 
people are going to take you seriously. You're an actual. I mean, you meet people who've fallen off ladders, <laughs> and they don't have much of a story to tell. <laughs> you, you have a real story to tell. And that's why I'm glad you gave us the detail on this. But from there, do they imme- immediately evacuate you? You 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 then are given your papers and sent back to what Britain, where they put you through the rehab and the ops. Yeah, where does right. it all happen? So literally, we secured a helicopter about 40 minutes later because we were still in an active firefight. So we couldn't get helicopters to land. Did you not pass out during that time a few times? Um, I didn't. I was very close to connect. And again, the medic was trying to- The blood loss alone. The blood loss alone was significant. Um, I had, so this is what's been taught. So I had less than a pint of blood in me by the time I got to the helicopter. By the time I got to a hospital. Um, of some sort. Uh, so that was significant. I was bleeding out of so many places. Oh. Obviously, the arm being one of them. I didn't even know about the leg. I remember the extensive pain that I had in my leg, constantly asking the medic, have I lost my leg? He's like, no, you've got it. But I remember actually that overwhelming the pain in my arm. I think the nerves were just confused. It was obviously separated. And it was just like the shock. It's just like numbed itself to a mm. degree. Um, but... I was then flown to, uh, again, a S- American Special Forces hospital. Um, they weren't very happy once we landed, knowing that we had detainees and other Afghan forces on the plane because they were like, they sh- they're not really supposed to be here. So they literally took me off and two of my friends. Um, and then sent those the helicopters set the rest of the way. And I was then um, in this hospital, and that's why I received the life-saving treatment. So my heart stopped twice on the operating table there in Afghanistan, where they brought me back to life. Um, and they just cut me open and took all of my internal organs out and kind of went through Rearranged you. Rearranged me and put it back in. Um, so it's unbelievable to, to know what these people can do and achieve in, in, in such an environment. To then, I think then I was put into a induced coma. Yeah. And six days later, I woke up in Selog Hospital in Birmingham, back in the UK. And yes, so then suddenly I saw my mum's face and my dad's face and a few friends and it was very confusing because my last clear memory was being in Afghanistan. And I was like, I knew kind of I got injured, but I thought I was in a field hospital in South South Africa. I was in a field hospital in, 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 in Afghanistan and I didn't want them to be there. And they had to explain to me that, no, we're all safe. We're in Birmingham. It's all okay. So, so yeah, the confusion was quite, quite significant. Just looking at your arm now, do you get that phantom limb syndrome thing? Is that a real yeah, thing? Yeah, it's the most odd, you know, thing ever because I can still feel some of my fingers move. I can still feel my palm. And sometimes it's actually quite painful as well because my fist will be crunched up and my it will feel like my fingers are getting bent the other way. And then I really have to relax and try to kind of memorize and actually visualize my left hand and actually releasing them. And there's actually a really good therapy uh, treatment where you have a box and it's called mirror therapy. And you obviously have a mirror on the side Mm -hmm. and the reflection of your right hand is your left hand. Um, So actually I can then, you trick the brain by looking into the mirror, thinking, oh, I've got a left hand again. And then slowly opening your hand, your palm, and then it releases the pain significantly. And it's something so simple, but it's so effective. But yes, I still get the phantom limb pain. So I'm not going to, I'm not going to skip the the amazing things that you've done since then, but I do want to just dwell on this for a minute because I think there must be a lot of things going through your head when something like this happens to you. And you're an enormous 
character because you've got this strength that you tap into from somewhere which gets you through things like this. Most people would give up. They feel very embittered. They feel very resentful. They want to find someone to blame. They think their life is over. And there are people who haven't even had one of their arms blown off mm -hmm. that feel that way. What, what kinds of things do you think you have and what sort of things do you think you do to get through situations like that? And why I'm asking you is because there may be people going through all kinds of stuff now who can learn something from you in this. Because mm -hmm. you didn't complain. I mean, you might have in private. Yeah. And you might have cried and you might have felt sorry for yourself. But how do you get past that? 100%. You know, I'm not sitting here going, I've kind of had this bad thing happen to me and life's been great ever since. And like you say, I, I had many nights crying. I had many hours of doubt and feeling, you know, wondering why it happened to me and why did it happen to me? Um, and I just got to a realization that the Taliban didn't kill me that night. That was the objective. But if I sit and feel sorry for myself, if I let this incident or what, you know, this, affect me and I get depressed and I feel sorry about everything, then they might as well kill me. They, they won. Yeah. They've destroyed yeah. my life. Because yeah. you give up. I give up, exactly. So for me, a big thing was not to give up. And it just seemed like, well, life took on a different role now, but it's also a new challenge. And I didn't know what I can and can't do, but let's go and find out what it is. What about the things that you realize you can't do anymore? Because some of them you don't realize until you're there. Exactly. Right? So you're like, well, I'll, I'll climb that. Oh, shh. I can't do that because I've yeah. got the arm. It's a learning curve. What sort of stuff? I mean, have you even in the last couple of months figured out, oh, can't do that anymore? Or now you can learn to do things differently? I think that's probably the biggest one. You, you, most of the times you learn to do things differently. And I think what I've learned as well that I really appreciate over the years of what happened to me is actually the ability to ask for help. You know, I think there's so many things that hmm. I want to do or think I need to do alone, but it doesn't necessarily have to. That actually asking for help, you know, isn't... Also, you got a great wife. Let's just give some credit yeah. where it's due. Yes. And she's here with you today. And, yeah. and it's a pleasure to meet her too, because often what people forget in these situations is that friends and family and a partner who cares about you... Yeah. Those are the people who also pull you through things like this, right? You can't do that on your own. Usually. And, you know, I have a beautiful wife. She's amazing. But like you say, you know, those days in my hospital bed, Oof. you know, I haven't met Catherine yet then. No. I haven't had her in my life. But that's where family, you know, for me, a big motivator was my mom. You know, having seen my mom's face and the worry and the shock when she saw me the first time, I needed to prove to her that I was going to be okay. And that's for me was a motivator to work hard in my rehabilitation to better my life every single day, get out of a bed into a wheelchair, get from a wheelchair into, a, you know, with a walking stick, drop that walking stick, being able to kind of live a, full, a fulfilled life. That was my motivator. Okay, so now I just want to focus on the things that you've done since then, because this is remarkable all on its own. I mean, even if you hadn't had this first part of the story, the fact that you've gone on to climb, you know, Everest to go to the North Pole, which you did with Prince Harry, right? Correct, yeah. yeah. 
Um, he's been a part of your life uh, for quite a long time. He, yeah. he, he met you in Afghanistan, didn't he? Uh, not in Afghanistan, actually. So him and his brother came and visit Oh, they visited the you at the hospital, that's yeah, right, when that's you were it. in hospital yeah. recovering. And it was just amazing how, you know, there was a whole world full of army blokes, all of it's missing, and mm. various injuries, blast wounds, and, you know, you name it. Um, but just their level of attention to each and every soldier that was in there that right. day. And not, you know, it, it wasn't there just to tick a box. They mm. were there with meaning. They were there because they wanted to be. Actually give a shit. To actually give a shit, yeah. <laughs> and I've got this great photo, which yeah. actually explains it, where he sits on my, you know, next to my bedside table. And, and he's literally like, we're engaged in a conversation and he's, you know, fully engaged in it. Um, and that's the first time I met him. And it then just so happens I met him a number of times after that. And then obviously he was then the patron of Walking with the Wounded, which is the charity we walked towards the North Pole. And yeah. he joined us on the ice and I got to know him quite a lot better there. All right. So tell me about this adventurous side of you, because I thought, you know, by the stage all of this has happened to you, you're like, okay, I've had enough adventure now. Let me go and take a job somewhere and just be quiet. <laughs> Calm down and like find a nice wife and relax. But you didn't. You did all these things, including international cycling, Paralympics. Uh, are you just like unable to sit quietly and do nothing? <laughs> What's wrong with you? I think so. Yeah, I, I've tried the job thing. You, you'll be surprised. You know, I have uh, actually. I, I've left the military knowing that obviously I need to kind of resettle in and and go into civilian life, and I had a job in insurance oh, for you about- must, You must have hated it. Eight months. You I hated think it. Absolutely the most miserable time of my whole life. Really? Worse Honest, than being- I'll get, I'll get hit by an RPG once more, honestly. You'd rather take another <laughs> RPG than work in insurance. I'll take another All those hit. people who listen who are working in insurance, let that be a lesson to you. Wow, okay. <laughs> and yes, and that was actually, you know, as much as I hated it and as much as it, it also opened my life to go, oh, you know, life is, obviously I've had all of this happen to me. I've then gone on to do all these adventure mm. stuff, but it was also like, wow, life is too short to actually sit in an office and be so unhappy. And I just made a conscious decision to kind of go, right, life is too short. I need to go and live and see what I can do and go and live some of my passions. And I always had a love and an interest in cycling, yeah. Cycling and very cold places. And cold places for some very odd reason. <laughs> I found myself in a lot of cold places and cold environments. What is the hardest thing you've done since, and I mean in terms of adventures and things, since the, 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 the experience in the military? Which one of those is the most difficult? I think, obviously, they all, they're different environments. They all bring their own kind of difficulty to it. But I do think the high altitude uh, mountaineering because sure. when you throw altitude into mix it, it it's a whole new level it's hard of, enough for people with all their limbs yeah and it's hard enough for people who do this for a living I mean they're professional mountaineers yes and you yeah. see some of those uh, Sherpas and you yeah. think these guys go up and down here 20 times uh, in a month they are they know? are superheroes they are absolutely but, but I incredible. mean it, there's something kind of a little bit crazy about you yeah that <laughs> You still want to climb the world's highest mountain, go to the North Pole and get on a bike and win gold at the Paralympics. Yeah. I think there's an element, it, it, I, and I've seen it over and over again, where we do tend to rock up somewhere, i.e. We, we step into these these environments or these kind of, what do you call it? So um, 
you know, very unique, very elite situations. situations. And those communities, uh, they're very protective of it. And, and like you say, a bunch of guys with bits missing will come and go, oh, we want to walk to the North Pole. And, go, this is not gonna and the polar community goes, no, no, no. It's, it's not for you guys. It's too difficult. It's too, you can't do it with your injuries. You, doing it unsupported, no chance. You yeah. can't do this unsupported. And then we just go and prove them wrong, basically. You like the odds being against you. Yeah. And it was the same with the mountaineering. They're like, there's not a chance a guy without an arm is going to reach so the summit what, of what this. About mountaineering, what about mountaineering is the hard part? Is it breathing? Is it, is it the actual ascent in terms of it physically exhausting you? Um, is it, is it a, a, a tactical and logistical thing? Like, what's the hard part? The hard part is, is as you say, so it's actually getting up and then getting into the altitude and once you hit certain altitudes, and it's you it's can't how get enough we, air, right? You can't get enough air into your body, so everything slows down. You sometimes have to take four steps, and then stop, and then take. You know, it takes you a minute to get your breath back. To then take another four or five steps. To then stop, and everyone is different. Everyone is how you are genetically made up of how you deal with altitude. And for some people, you know, this effect started starts at six thousand meters. And for other people, it starts at seven thousand meters, or even you know, even lower. But mm. it it's just, and it's obviously. So basically, what's happening is, because you have this reduction in oxygen in the air, your body is going, oh, something's not right. So it, it distracts all the blood uh, from your extremities, and it it's got two functions: your brain needs to work, and your heart needs to work. Mm. And then that's what it kind of. Kind of, like, kind of like when you were taken away in that helicopter. Yeah. And, and your body's like, why are you doing this to me again? Yeah, yeah, to a degree. And did you have feelings of frostbite in your missing limb? You know what? Um, did that get cold? So again, <laughs> yes, the stump gets yeah. very cold. So we had to figure out to be, systems. There's no, there's no, no. Built to have circulation there. Circulation is much less there. Mm. So we had to work out systems. So I actually adapted some of my kit um, and sewn some pockets onto some of my base layers and then put a hand warmer mm. into a pocket just to keep the arm wrapped up and, yeah. and nice and warm. But yes, it's a various, that is a high risk of frostbite because again, there's so little feeling there mm. that by the you time I know. feel something yeah. is, or, or like you said, I can look down and then go, oh, we'll pass the stage of, of, of re, uh, resolving this. Aren't you amazed? Because you're again a walking example of this. Like you're amazed at how resilient the human body is, huh? It blows my mind. And not <laughs> having seen it in myself, but seen it in so many other men and women, I've, I would say I've had the privilege of seeing people actually much more severely disabled than me or injured than me. But seeing their zest for life and seeing how their bodies adapt and how they cope, their coping me mechanisms, I think the human body is actually one of the most amazing things probably in existence of, like you say, how we can actually deal with trauma, how we adapt, how we overcome you know, so many elements, um, it is actually quite phenomenal what we can do as, as a human body. So I got to ask you this, because it's the, the, this is your first book, which is called Unequivocal. I mean, it's just terrific. And it's filled with really interesting stories that we haven't even had a chance to touch on. And pictures, which I'm glad you put. You got the MBE from Prince Charles when he's still Prince. He wasn't king yet, That's right? That's right. Yeah, he was Prince then. And it was what, last year? Yes, Wow. Yeah, just last year. Okay, so that's that's a 
very big deal because it's kind of recognition, not from a person, but from the country that you served. Correct. Um, and it wasn't just for your military service because you were recognized in other ways for that. And it wasn't just for winning gold at the Paralympics. It's kind of for who you are. I think so. Which yeah. Is a, it's a big deal. It's a big deal. Uh, it really is a big deal. And it's amazing to see as well, you know, on the day. It's a wonderful day. It's a really wonderful experience as well. But also to see that there is still wonderful things and wonderful people in society. To also stand there and hear all the other people's some of the other people's yeah, yeah, yeah. with their recognition. Because you're there in an wine. award ceremony with people who are teachers and doctors Correct. and, you know, incredible exactly. people. And it's amazing that. to hear these contributions that these people bring to society, obviously most, you know, generally within the world, but mostly within the UK. And to know that actually there's still some very good people out in the world and trying to well, make a difference. you're one of them. You're one of them, Yaku. And I don't want to skirt through this, but doing all of these adventurous and incredible and, and crazy things that you've done, um, I also think that that gives you, because you're the kind of person who probably needs a goal. Um, and, and you like... There's your goal. Then once you've achieved that goal, you create a new one. Um, but you, you're married now, happily so. As I said, I met your wife earlier. What kind of goals do you guys have going forward? Because now she's part of your life. She makes decisions as much as you do. And you can't be running around doing crazy shit anymore if you have a family. That's what right. kinds of things are on the agenda for you going forward? Yeah, I'm. I mean, I... I'm blessed and I'm truly like count myself lucky every single day having her on my side. Mm. Um, we're very aligned of what we want to do, what we want to achieve. And she's so supportive of what I want to do as well. Um, and like I say, actually the aim, the short term goal again on a, on a, on a, on a basis of adventure, not so much advantage, but it's to go to next year's Paralympics and achieve what I've done in, in Tokyo as well. Amazing. Um, but yeah, you know, us, us as a couple, it you know, we we just want to um, create a life that's you know for both of us just enriching and being able to make a change in the world as well. We are very um, involved in in military charities in the UK. I'm sure, and and wanting to create a better life. You know, not everyone is in a position like myself to to be able to go and climb mountains and to almost have a bit of a profile and a little bit of a voice. And if I can use that to loads of people um, find themselves struggling with mental health and find themselves on the streets homeless. And if we can help in that sense, we both have a passion to kind of help those guys on a better path, get them out of, into some form of recovery, give them a place to stay, um, provide them with a stable home, a place that they can rebuild their lives um, and that's been a vision of us, you know, for us for some beautiful. time to kind of do something towards that. I love the last line of your book. You say, maybe, just maybe, I was only getting started. <laughs> it's a hell of a story, man. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you coming to talk to us. I appreciate your time. And thank no, you for God, having I'm, I'm thrilled to actually, you know, sometimes people say to me, who are, the, who are the best people you could interview? Who are the best people to talk to? And it's not famous people or people who have millions of followers on Instagram or people who've been to cool places or mm. spent lots of money or created businesses. It's uh, the stuff that we've just been talking about. It, it just blows my mind. Yeah. Thank you, dude. Thank you so what much. What a pleasure to see you. Thank you, Thank Yaku. You. All the best with the book. Will do. Thank you. Cool. Amazing. I was so lucky. Cliffcentral.com.